0: Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: See, as the Word of God enlightens you, you see that some of these things are cultural. Some of these things are taboos are not biblical, and you have freedom to do that. But the problem is, if you use your freedom in the presence of a brother or sister who doesn't have that freedom, doesn't know that freedom yet, and they start doing what their conscience doesn't permit them to do, then either they will end up being a moral wreck, or else they will plunge further and further back into legalism. It's never healthy. It'll either drive them further into legalism, or it'll force them to become moral wrecks.
2: It's never a good idea to flaunt our Christian liberty before other Christians who might not feel that same liberty, but I sure see it a lot on social media, and I wonder sometimes about the effect that it has on some of their friends. The Apostle Paul gave us some great counsel about those things in Romans chapter 14, and that's our subject today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is in the middle of a short three broadcast series about Christian liberty from verses 13 through 23 of Romans 14. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In the first part of the chapter, Paul warned us not to criticize one another over non-essentials, such as what we eat or what days we honor. By itself, those verses might lead us to include that it's no one else's business what we do in those areas of our life. But Paul goes on to remind us that if we love each other, we'll be considerate of how our behavior can harm someone who doesn't yet feel the same liberty that we do. Grab your Bible if you have it with you. Here's Pastor Steve.
1: If you're taking notes, the first truth that we want to look at or guideline is the principle of love. This is the broad principle of how love and liberty work together. Verse 13. Therefore... Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now this verse is connected with the last verse of the last section. It is a bridge from the last section and introduces the first one. Because the verse before this speaks of of the fact that someday we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which I said last week is not a judgment for sin. It's a judgment for the way we have lived. It's, it's not even a judgment so much as it is a reward for the way that we lived. Or a lack of rewards if we have not been pleasing to the Lord. So if you put these two verses together, Paul is saying, since God is the judge, let's stop judging one another. Let's stop condemning one another. Instead, he says, if you must make judgments, make this kind of a judgment. Make a judgment on yourself and your actions so that you don't place a stumbling block in your weaker brother's path. That's what he's saying. If you must make some determinations, then determine not to cause anybody to stumble. If you're so inclined to making judgments, then judge yourself. Determine this. The great principle of love is that it doesn't use its liberty without first considering how it will affect others. I hope you see that. It doesn't flaunt its liberty. It doesn't say, I have liberty, therefore I'm going to do whatever I want because God says I'm free. No, love doesn't do that. Love says, how will it affect someone else? You see, the strong brother was condemning and criticizing the weak brother for being so immature and so legalistic and so rule-oriented, and he was looking down on that weak brother because his knowledge of his liberty was shallow. That's exactly what he was doing. Look at verse 3. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. You see this attitude in Christian circles all the time. People calling out Pharisees and legalists and all of this and name calling and contempt and why don't you grow up and what? Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, stop condemning. Now, he uses two terms here in verse 13 the term obstacle and stumbling block. An obstacle would be something you trip over, something that would temporarily halt you. It would be falling into sin, is what Paul is saying. Don't do anything that might cause your brother to fall into sin. And the, uh, the second thing he speaks of is a stumbling block. That would be more of a uh, of a trap. That was a that was the way they would trap animals. They would have a stick over, and the animal would come, and it would spring the trap. And that would be more than a temporary halting. That would be really a problem. Someone would fall deeply into sin and would. Halt, not just hinder is Christian progress. It would put it at a standstill. Paul is saying that there's something far more important than simply following your freedom and doing what you think you can do. You must determine never to injure your weaker brother in the use of your liberty. You say, how could I possibly do that? How could what I... Am I my brother's keeper? How could I possibly injure somebody else by what I do? Well, you need to look at Verse 14. Because Paul explains it. I know, Paul said, and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Let's stop there for a moment. Is that true? It has to be. The Word of God says it. There aren't any foods that are unclean. That is, food cannot spiritually defile you. In other words, food is not a moral issue. Now, that doesn't mean That everything we eat is good for us. That there may be things that are nutritionally bad for us. But what he's saying is you're not any more spiritual if you refrain from certain foods. And you're not any more spiritual if you eat certain foods. It's not a matter of morality and spirituality. It may be a matter of good common sense, especially in our day and age. But the point is that the Old Testament legal system of kosher foods died when Christ died on the cross. And that's why, and we went over this last, last week, Jesus said it's not, the, it's not the things that go into you that defile you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And that's why we also said that 1 Timothy 4.3 teaches us that every food can be received if it's received with thanksgiving. And that's why we also said that in Acts chapter 10, the Lord said to Peter, Arise and kill! And he had pictures in his, in his mind of of pig and animals that were forbidden in the Old Testament. And God said, Peter, rise up and eat. And Peter said, I've never touched anything unclean. God said, you can now. So this is absolutely absolutely correct with everything else that the Bible teaches. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, he's not speaking of moral issues here. Just, Just take anything. For instance, mowing your lawn on Sunday. Is mowing your lawn a moral issue? I hope not. I hope not. Other things. Drinking coffee, is that a moral issue? No. no. In and of itself, it's unclean. Now, how we use it may make it unclean and the way we use it. But the issue itself is not unclean. It's not a moral issue. Look at 1 Corinthians 8a. We're going to be turning... Back and forth to 1 Corinthians and Romans 14 because they parallel each other. They explain each other. 1 Corinthians 8.8, Paul says, and he's dealing with a similar issue here, except the issue here is that Gentiles would not eat certain foods that had been sacrificed to idols. He says this, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. Do you understand that? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Food is not a spiritual issue. Okay. So all foods can be eaten by believers today, but not every believer realizes this. Because look at the rest of verse 14. And Paul says, I know, I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus has taught me this. And I know this to be a fact that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In the church at Rome, you had Jewish believers who had been brought up to regard pork as unclean. Now they become Christians. But do you think it's that easy if somebody hands them a pork sandwich that they're going to say, great. I mean, one day before they were in the legal Old Testament system, now they're saved. Now do you think that their conscience is going to totally open up and they can accept that? No way. Some probably could, but not, not, not others. I wonder if Paul... When he was first saved, had difficulty when the first ham sandwich was offered to him. Peter did. That's why he said, "Never, Lord." Peter was a saved man. Peter, Peter understood the Old Testament system was gone, and yet he had a struggle with it. But you know that it's all right to eat pork. You know that you could eat it without any problem. But should you eat it? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not in the presence of a weaker brother. Look at verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. You see, if you set an example for a weak brother that he can't handle, his conscience won't allow him to do it. His conscience is not uh, persuaded in this area. But he does it. Because he, he looks up to you and he's new in the Lord. Or maybe he's been in the Lord for a while and he's, he just hasn't grown in his conscience. And he looks to you and he sees you eating it and, he's, and he goes in and he says, well, if he can eat it, I guess I could do it. And he goes ahead and does it, but his conscience is defiled and that's a horrible thing to do. He says, your brother is hurt. You see, if a Christian violates his conscience in one area, that's a non-moral issue. He will soon be violating his conscience in moral Issues. You never want to send somebody on the road to violating their conscience. Conscience is what God uses to lead us, to prompt us. And if you violate your conscience in an area, before long you're violating it in other areas. And if you do that, you are, you are callousing your conscience to the point where you don't care what God is saying to you in the sense of prompting you. You see, it's that part of us that the Spirit of God prompts And he guides us through the conscience and he leads us. And that's why some of you cannot do things that others can. And that's all right. And we need to understand that. And we're not talking about things the Bible commands us to do or forbids us to do. Understand that. We're talking about areas that God says you're free to do. But some of us don't have a conscience that realizes that freedom. Do never, do not and never violate your conscience. The Spirit of God doesn't prompt us in areas that our conscience can't handle. But as we mature in Christ, our conscience is enlightened by the Word of God and as as more and more that enlightening takes place, there will be areas of our liberty that we realize and we can gradually do things where we were never able to do them in the past. That's called growth. I was talking to someone recently who grew up in a very rigid home that they couldn't do this, they couldn't do that. I said, well, how did you get out of that? Well, one of the reasons he just got into the Word of God. You see, as the Word of God enlightens you, you see that some of these things are cultural. Some of these things are taboos are not biblical and you have freedom to do that. But the problem is if you use your freedom in the presence of a brother or sister who doesn't have that freedom, doesn't know that freedom yet, and they start doing what their conscience doesn't permit them to do, then either they will end up being a moral wreck or else you, they will plunge further and further back into legalism. It's never healthy. It'll either drive them further into legalism or it'll force them to become moral wrecks. Let me just illustrate it. I used the illustration just a few minutes ago about mowing your lawn. Mowing a lawn is not a moral issue. If you have the freedom to mow your lawn on Sunday, it doesn't mean that you should necessarily do that because there are plenty of brethren who would gasp and would have problems with that. And there might be some new precious believer who looks to you and says, well, you know, he's been saved for a while. He can mow his lawn on Sunday. I'll go ahead and mow my lawn on Sunday. But he doesn't have the same freedom. He doesn't sense that freedom in his conscience that you do. He shouldn't do that. Because if he violates mowing his lawn on on Sunday, then when something else comes up of a conscience issue, he's going to do the same thing. And before you know it, he is violating his conscience and that's not what God wants him to do. God wants to protect that conscience until it can grow a little bit. If you force a brother to do an activity before his conscience is ready to accept it, verse 15 says this, it will hurt him. And you're no longer walking according to love because you're more interested in what you can do rather than how it affects him. And that's not love. And the illustration he uses here in one sense, he says, do not destroy with your food. Him for whom Christ died. So how could I destroy somebody? Well, it doesn't mean that they're going to lose their salvation, obviously. And it doesn't mean that they're going to abandon the faith either. But it does mean that you're going to ruin his Christian life in terms of he's going to feel guilty. And if he feels guilty, he's going to lose the assurance of his salvation. His effectiveness as a witness is gone. He won't feel like he can witness. His confidence in prayer is over. You have basically rendered him useless as a Christian. In fact, maybe some of you can look back in your own life and say, that's where I went wrong. I began to violate my conscience and I couldn't stop or I didn't stop. It might have started over this very same issue. Very same area. And Paul says that not only it will hurt him and destroy him, but he says for whom Christ died. That's a tremendous statement. Listen, Jesus Christ gave up his rights. He's God. He's God. He equal with the Father, and Philippians chapter 2 says he didn't hold on to that. He didn't say, these are my rights to always be in the form of God. But the Bible says he relinquished those rights, and he took on the form of a bondservant. He became a man. And if Jesus Christ relinquished his rights to save a brother, then how dare we use our own rights to hurt a brother, to ruin him spiritually. The point is this. If you really love your brother in Christ, you'll refrain from the use of your liberty. It's no big deal. It's not that important. Is food so important that you would harm your brother for it? Is card playing so important? The movie so important? You see, true love says, I'll give up my rights if it hurts my brother. Because I put him first before me. Just because I have a right doesn't mean I have to use it. Paul deals with this 1 Corinthians chapter 8, once again. Same thing. Verses 7 through 13. He says this, However, not all men have this knowledge. That is, not all men understand how free they are in Christ. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Some of the people here, the Gentiles, have been saved out of paganism. In paganism, they offered food to idols. Now they're saved. But you have some Gentile believers who said, I can never touch anything, any food that had been offered to an idol now. And you had others who came along and said, why? It's the best meat on the market. See, there were some, the food they offered to an idol, they, they burnt some of that, but there were some left over and it was usually choice meat and it was sold rather cheaply. And some Gentile believers said, we can eat that because an idol is nothing. It's nothing, Paul says. And others said, no, that represents the old life to us. Uh, We cannot do that because if we do that, we might fall back into our old pattern of thinking. And that's what Paul is addressing. He says, not not all men have this knowledge. Not everybody knows an uh, an idol is nothing. But some being accustomed to an idol until now, that's their whole background. They eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But he says, but food will not commend us to God. Neither the worse if we do eat nor the better if we do not eat. Paul Paul says it really, theologically, doesn't matter. Spiritually, it won't help us or hurt us. But take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idol? He says, I can't do it. But wait a minute. He can do it. I'll be strong and I'll do this. But look what happens. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, destroyed spiritually. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Powerful words. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. You see Paul's point? God doesn't care about the food you eat or the food you don't eat, but others do. And God does care about his children, so don't hurt his children. Because if you sin against them, you sin against him. He died for them. He gave up his rights for them. That's the least you could do. See, Christ died for that rule-oriented brother, and how dare we render him useless to God because we want to see a movie or go to the theater or play cards. That's the point. We live in a very self-centered Christian environment. The evangelical world today is very self-centered. People are fighting for their rights. I mean, we sue each other. We fight to do this. we If anyone says you can't do it, oh, legalistically... We we call people names. We do all kinds of things and we take advantage of the freedom that Christ has given us at the expense of others. And that's not love. That's sin. So if you're free, it doesn't mean that you have to use your freedom. Paul certainly didn't. We're called to be sensitive to those who are weak. Weak in the area of conscience. So that is the broad principle of love. What about the priorities of love? That's the second guideline. Love has priorities. Love doesn't get nitpicky. Love doesn't pursue trivia. That's the original trivial pursuit. You see what I mean? Verse 16. Therefore, do not let what is for you, a good thing, be spoken of as evil. What does he mean here? It's good. Isn't it good that a a Jew coming out of, of Judaism knows that he's free in Christ? He doesn't have to worship on the Sabbath? That every day to the Lord is to be a day of worship? Isn't that good? Sure it is. Isn't it good that a Jew who could never eat certain foods could be saved and now he can eat all kinds of things? Isn't that good? Isn't that good that Christ has set him free from the bondage of the law? Sure it is. That's wonderful. That's good. But it's not good if he abuses it. It's not good if he abuses it. And that's why he says, do not let that which is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Who would speak of it as evil? I don't think here he primarily, primarily means the weak brother. I think he's talking about the world. I think he's talking about the unsaved person. That would seem to be the context as he follows through on that in verses 17 and 18. The world looks at believers who don't care enough about their weaker brother to cause them to stumble or to refrain from using their liberty so that the brother stumbles. And the the unsaved world looks at us fighting on silly nitpicky issues where we won't refrain from the use of our liberty and they blaspheme the God that we claim to love. All they do is they see us fighting. Let me explain. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating, it's not drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The essence of Christianity is not what you eat, and it is not what you drink. It isn't based upon a set of rules and regulations or legalistic ceremonies. What really matters, the heart of Christianity, is what he says in verse 17. It is righteousness before God. It is peace with God and peace with one another and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the sphere in which Christ reigns. That's what Christianity is all about. That I'm right with God. That I have peace with Him. I have peace with my fellow believers. That I have joy. That I'm in harmony with Christ and in harmony with one another. That is the essence of of Christianity. That's what really matters. It's the internal realities of righteousness, peace and joy. Not food. Not drink. Not drink. Let me apply this, because I think when we deal with food and drink, those aren't issues to us, and we tend to to just exclude that from our 20th century application. The application is this. Many Christians look at questionable issues in the Christian life as the thing. That's what they hear preached about. That's what they talk about. The central thing to them is, can a man wear a beard? How long should his hair be? What if he touches a drink of wine? What if he smokes? What if he goes to movies? The length of a dress. That's the central issue to many, many, many Christians. And they go to churches that preach about that every single week. And the world listens to this. And you know what they think? Christianity is a, is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Because that's all they ever hear. Because we've lost our priorities there are churches that focus on nothing but these type of issues. And the world looks at that and they make a conclusion that that's what their Christianity is all about. And they see us fighting over it and they see us getting in church splits over that kind of stuff. And they blaspheme the very God that we claim to represent because they can't see us getting along in love. They All they see is us disagreeing on these non-essential trivial issues. As I said a moment ago, this really is trivial pursuit. Things that aren't vital to the Christian life. We've lost sight of what really counts.
2: It's all too easy to get caught up in seeking out and putting a stop to the things that don't actually matter while glossing over the more serious spiritual issues that actually will have eternal consequences. We especially don't want to confuse social taboos with moral failure. Pastor Steve Kreloff will wrap up this three-part series on Christian liberty on our next verse-by-verse. Thanks for listening. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit Lakeside, you'll find the address and service times at lakesidechapel.com or call the office during business hours at 727-441-1714. That's lakesidechapel.com or call 727 441 1714. If you missed the first part of this series, you can stream or download it from the Message Archive page at versebyverseradio.org or browse the files to see if there's another series that you'd like to hear. There's also a giving page if you'd like to help with the expenses involved in producing and airing verse-by-verse. Verse. Our support team is an important part of this ministry and we appreciate their generosity. That website again is versebyverseradio.org I'm Jerry Peterson. Join us next time on Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve wraps up this series. We'll see that while God points out that he doesn't ask us to abandon our Christian liberty, at the same time, nothing good will come from flaunting it.
0: You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit Verse by Verse Radio. There's a lot going on right now.